1: on 24-7 Podcast. I'm Thomas Goldcamp here with Blake Alderman. Blake, we talked about it going into the game. You know, the only real way that Florida was going to be in a tough contest against Vanderbilt was with if, if it made a bunch of mistakes, turned the ball over, that kind of thing. Not really what happened. You know, Florida probably didn't play its cleanest game on Saturday in winning 38-17. to 17. But you're seeing with this team, you know, even when they don't play a great game, you still end up coming out with a 21-point win. What was your overall takeaway from this game, I guess, and, and where did you come out feeling?
2: The game for the most part, Florida started pretty slow. I think when you watch, when you watch just how the team was starting there in the in the first half, you you could kind of tell that maybe not the best week of practice. I think Dan Mullen even kind of said so, uh, talking to the media uh, post game or even on Monday when he did his, his weekly press conference. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's hard to get hyped up for a Vandy team that's winless, an 11 a.m. game on the road. There's probably a lot of factors that you know. Even at the end of the day, it's just, it's hard to, to get yourself in the, in the right mindset against a team like that. And, you know, obviously Florida, they came out on top. There were some some mistakes that they made, things that they need to clean up. You know, obviously the defense, especially in the secondary, not an awful game. I mean, there were definitely some mistakes. You know, the secondary, I think, is the glaring issue when you look at Florida's defense and continues to be that. Um, but I think the best thing for Florida to do is to continue to, you know, grind things out in practice and keep themselves focused. And I think now that when you have a game like this, it, it could kind of scare a team, you know, maybe not scaring them in the sense they ever felt like they were going to lose this game, but just scaring them to know that it, if, it, if you're not playing a Vanderbilt and you go in there and you, and you, so to say, sleepwalk through a game, they can come back and bite you.
1: Yeah. This would have been a much scarier game against a team that had a little bit more talent, you know, credit to Ken Seals, Vanderbilt's quarterback. I thought he played a really, really good game and, and kind of took advantage of what Florida gave him. And we've seen that a lot defensively. I think, I don't know, I guess coming out of this game, it seemed from my vantage point, point. I want to get your thoughts on it, but it seemed from my vantage point that fans were really, really frustrated after this game. It seemed to me and a little bit uh, kind of an undue sense of panic. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it seemed, it seemed that fans were very, very upset. You know, we talked about some of the defensive issues needing to get cleaned up. And obviously, you know, they haven't been fully uh, to this point. You know, Vanderbilt had a 58-yard touchdown on another bust. You know, Florida fans, I think, are very, very frustrated at this point with the amount of soft coverage, you know, that the secondary is playing where teams are able to convert pretty easily on a lot of these third downs. You know, I think Vanderbilt was something like seven of 15 in the game off the top of my head. Um, so I, I guess Blake, what was the concern or the panic from the fan base an overreaction? Cause to me, it seems like I think everything at this point is kind of viewed under the lens of, is it good enough for Bama? And not that that's the wrong lens to look at things necessarily, but I don't think you're going to see, all of a sudden, you know, Florida shows up one week and they look like a, you know, complete team. You know, it's going to be ebbs and flows and it's going to be incremental progress. I guess I'm seeing more of that than I think maybe generally the fan base is.
2: You know, I think there were some overreactions and I think at this point, Florida fans are just ready to see a defensive style that they've seen over the last couple of years. You know, Florida has had, you know, their offense has obviously come a long way under Dan Mullen, but Florida, for the most part, has fielded a really strong defense over the years. You know, obviously, there's some years here and there where, you know, things are a drop off. I think probably the most concerning thing of what I got from Florida fans is that this was a true freshman for a winless Vanderbilt team that looked pretty crisp for the most part. Obviously didn't get the win, um, but when you're going against a true freshman, I guess and, and you, with the expectations that Florida had on defense this year, minus losing some players here and there that were some key players they had to replace, I think this was just a game where you expected Florida's defense, or fans at least expected Florida's defense to come in and just dominate a freshman quarterback on a young team, on a winless team, and, and it just – the game was never out of question, but you didn't see that dominating defense performance. And I think that that probably was more so where the fans were a little angry about.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point. You bring up a good point there because, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about how Todd Grantham's defense, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Todd Grantham and the defensive style and some of the issues that they're having specifically. Um, but I think a lot of people have been frustrated that it seems like every time Florida plays a veteran quarterback, you know, a Jake From a Kellen Mond, they're able to kind of carve up Florida's defense. And when you talk about a true freshman being able to do that, you know, I don't think this Florida team has been as effective as it needs to be. And certainly not, you know, it, it, they're not at the level right now where you're going to feel comfortable about them being able to shut down Mac Jones and granted, you're not going to fully shut down Mac Jones, but you need to get to the point where fans feel comfortable to the point where it's not just going to be a shootout. And if the offense has a couple of mistakes, like the Kadarius tumble late in the fourth quarter, there, fumble, humble, you know, that it's not going to be a, a game ending thing. And, uh, I think, you know, I, I guess let's get into talking about some of the defensive issues because Blake one, one area I definitely have concerns about is it seems like Florida is not well equipped to handle tempo. And if there's anything Nick Saban has learned over the last couple of years it's that tempo is really hard to deal with offensively. And you've seen Bama adopt that kind of tempo that upstyle offense. How, did, how does Florida fix that? I mean, it, it really is as simple as coaches is, is, – is it as simple as coaches just not making as many subs? Is it guys being on the same page communicating quicker? Like, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that myself.
2: I don't know that I do either, and I don't know if it's just the simple fact of continuing to kind of sub guys around. Because when you look at the linebackers, you know, and I, I know the secondary is probably more so the issues and, and where a lot of those, you know, stretch plays and those busts that Florida's given up are. But I thought watching the game, a guy like Tyron Hopper, who came in late in the game, I thought he played really well. I thought that he showed that he should be getting some more stats. And I think you see some of these younger guys in the secondary for Florida that come out and, you know, they seem to be outplaying some of the you know, those elder-type guys, some of those upperclassmen. Can you say that when you play, play them the whole stretch of a game? You know, I, I don't know. So I guess that's where I, I don't know that I quite have the answer there either. But I think there's just – when you look at the tempo – I think just subbing guys out and keeping them, you know, fresh legs, I think that that could be something, but I think overall, just the secondary that they run, you know, those, you know, the Steiners, the Sean Davises, they all have their deficiencies. And I think that those deficiencies are getting exposed. And I think whenever you put up that tempo and you make them kind of have to think and and you you put them in a little bit more of a flustered situation, I think that those things a little bit more magnified.
1: I I think no question about it. And we've talked about some of the physical limitations of a a Donovan Steiner, you know, Sean Davis tends to get lost in coverage a little bit. Marco Wilson, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's just not having full confidence in the knee or just maybe he's not the same player that he once was after that big injury. Yeah, like you said, I mean, it, we kind of know what they are at this point. And I think that's another source of frustration for fans is they have a lot of younger guys that have shown some promising signs. You know, Rashad Torrance is obviously a guy that comes up and he, he wraps up and tackles. And you don't always see that out of Sean Davis. You don't always see that out of Donovan Steiner. You know, Florida's staff has obviously had a penchant to play veteran guys more frequently or or stick with them longer even than maybe most people would prefer them to. I'm not going to say that's a problem, but I do think we've talked about it. Florida's got to start developing some of these younger guys and seeing if one of these guys is a transcendent talent. You know, when guys play as freshmen and they're capable of playing as freshmen, those are guys that later on develop into really good players. You know, I always think back to like Keanu Neal, a Matt Elam, you know, they're not going to be the stars that they were as a freshman but they may be able to get you some of those game-changing plays. And we we talked about it on the last episode of the podcast. Where are the superstars on defense? You know, it's probably a little late in the season to get any of these freshmen playing at a superstar level. But I thought Jervon Dexter took some really good positive strides. Um, even, even from some of the non-necessarily younger players, you know, Josiah Pierre is a guy at linebacker that, you know, has been in the program for a couple of years now. I thought he played really well against Vanderbilt. And so the question becomes, you know, How do you find that blend of wanting to get a little bit more out of your playmakers versus sticking with experience, particularly in situations where you know, you're going to need it. Like an SEC championship game Um, guys that aren't going to panic. I do think what you're seeing right now is a lot of lack of confidence on the defense. You know, it was very clear watching a couple of the plays, particularly in the first half against Vanderbilt. And we're talking about tempo. I mean, there's one play where, Tyree Campbell is is yelling at the the sideline to try to get the play in. Vanderbilt's going up-tempo. They're getting ready to snap the ball. So he's up waving his arms, looking at the sideline. Meanwhile, Marco Wilson is on, you know, the, the Florida sideline part of the field, and he's trying to get a call. He's looking back while he's trying to run over, you know, run to his spot over his shoulder to the other sideline. Vanderbilt gets a snap, and they throw a quick screen to the guy that Marco Wilson's supposed to be covering, and Wilson's 20 yards away from the play, still running to get there. Those are the kind of things that, you wouldn't expect veterans to have an issue with. And that's where I lean on, uh, you know, having a little bit more issue with the defensive coaching, whatever it is, Todd Grantham, his staff, whether it's a student intern that's given them the personnel grouping that Vanderbilt's in, and then they make the call from there, whatever that process is that absolutely has to get cleaned up, you know, and and it's not always going to be perfect. There's a reason that teams struggle with tempo talking to Dan Mullen today, you know, we kind of pressed them on some of these defensive issues saying, and you know, you're seven games into the season. Now you're in year three shouldn't this be ironed out? And, and he basically said, no, man, like these, this is what tempo does to you. And it can also backfire on you. And he pointed out, you know, the one play where Vanderbilt snapped it early and they had a guy that was still five yards, you know, behind the defense, you know, so there are drawbacks to it. And I, I don't know if, if Florida is kind of okay with giving up a little bit to tempo because they know that from a structure standpoint as a team, they can win these type of games. Maybe that's it. Um, But I do think – I don't know. I just think there's a lot to clean up. And when you talk about the the personnel decisions, there have been some questionable ones. I mean, we've talked about what we thought were guys playing out of position at times. And after that Texas A&M loss, Dan Mullen said the same thing, that they they need to make sure they're they're doing the right thing in terms of getting guys in the right spot. Now, having said that, you know, I I sensed a little bit of frustration Saturday from Dan Mullen when he was discussing the defense. I didn't sense it today. You know, in fact, today it seemed more like he was – kind of focused on the big picture of, hey, we only gave up 17 points. We really, outside of the first opening to the game, we really didn't give up much at all. And he's right. And so there's part of me that wonders if we are being overly critical. And that's why I bring up the lens of, like, looking at this through the Alabama standpoint. But I also think to some degree, because UF's offense is so good and they're operating at such a high level, you almost start to hold the defense to a higher standard subconsciously. And I think there's some of that going on, too. Again, you look at it on paper, you know, Florida's defense, for the most part, is doing the job. I mean, you look at the scoreboard, 17 points. You know, Granted, it's Vanderbilt, but that's still not bad.
2: No, no doubt. And I think that whenever you have those championship-type teams, I think that's where you start to get a little nitpicky on things. Um, regardless, I do think it's hard to not look in the spectrum of looking against Bama because seemingly, when you look at Florida's remaining in their schedule – they're, they're they should be favored in all those games. You expect them to win pretty comfortably in all those games. So you kind of have to look ahead to Bama, that is, you know, going out and they're beating Kentucky, you know, sixty something to, you know, what, what uh, by a large margin, whatever it was, it was it was a big you know big score margin. So I think whenever you're looking at that, I think I think it is hard to not look in the spectrum of of knowing that Florida's going to play Alabama, knowing that Florida has that championship type team, and I think that those are just the questions that you're going to get. I mean, I remember you know Florida in you know, the early 2000s where you know the If they didn't score enough points, you know, they weren't good enough. You know, I I get it. There's, there's, those are the type of things that you talk about whenever you have those elite type teams and those championship type teams. So there's some ebbs and flows in it. I mean, Dan Mullen knows these things too. You know, I mean, he was obviously an offensive coordinator. He knows how the Florida market is. Um, But I do think that, Whenever I watch the offense, and I don't know if it's something that's apples to oranges and you can't compare it, but when you look at Florida go out there and trot out some of those guys, the younger guys in the offensive line, like a Joshua Braun, who's going out there and he's getting a starting job before his offensive line. You see them throwing some of these true freshmen or redshirt, you know, younger guys in on the offensive side. And it does bring the question to me, at least that, you know, why aren't they doing that on the defensive side?
1: I mean, they are to some degree, right? To I mean, some degree. Body. Sure. A lot. Rashad Torrance is playing a lot. But, but it yeah, seems I, like
2: that was kind of more out of necessity. You know, you throw Torrance in right. and you don't have Sean Davis in there. You don't have him in there for the Ole Miss game because he's ejected. You don't have him, you know, because of, uh, I believe it was COVID protocols for the, for the Missouri game. So it seems like outside of Javon Dexter, who I think we all knew, five-star, big, giant dude. I mean, I mean, he's a guy that you look at him, you're like, this guy is going to play as a freshman. But outside of that, it seems like a lot of those other guys have been played out of necessity.
1: No, You're right, and particularly when the veterans are struggling. I mean, that's, that's the thing. When the veterans are struggling, why not get those other guys in there and to your point, you know, Dan Mullen said that was one of the things Saturday that he was frustrated with, that the defense, you know, we see the offense every week. They'll play Kyle Trask and all the starting wideouts on one series, and then literally the second series of the game. Even if Florida's behind 7-0, they're getting that second group of receivers in, Justin Shorter, Xavier Henderson, uh, Keon Zipper, all those guys. You know, we, we didn't see that as much on defense, and Dan Mullen kind of got on Todd Grantham for that, and that's something that they definitely wanted to correct. And, again, I think it's, that's, that's one of the ways you create depth, but you also – your point, when you're playing those younger guys in situations where they're live game situations, that's when, you know, the cream rises to the top and you find out which of those freshmen are, you know, maybe not quite ready for the big jump and which ones can potentially handle it. And I I do think that's something that Dan Mullen absolutely singled out and they want to do more of. Um, But I'm curious, Blake, are, are there any particular guys right now that you can say this guy should be playing more?
2: You know, I already mentioned Tyron Hopper. I think he's one. I think Rashad Torrance is another guy that coming out of high school, he was a tackle machine. I think he had over 100 tackles as a senior um, playing for Mary at high school in Georgia. I think he's another guy too. Um, I don't know if we count him as a younger guy, but Jaden Hill I think shows a lot of, of a lot of promise at that cornerback position. I think he has the length. I think he can cover well. Um, those are some guys off the top of my head. I didn't notice Josiah Pierre. I know you mentioned him. Um, I know he's another guy there too. I think with linebackers, um, I think that those are ones that you you know, Tyron Hopper to me is the guy I thought that he really jumped out. Um, past that, you know, I think Princely Uman Mielan is a guy that has flashed, but you know when you look at Florida's defensive line board, you know you, you can't take him out and put in a Zach Carter other than, you know, maybe rotations here and there to get him some breaths and, you know, rotate guys around. I
1: Chris Bogle was another Chris one. Chris Bogle is
2: another guys. one too. I mean, he plays a lot too, so I don't know if we're counting him as, as well, but I mean, Chris Bogle is a guy that I thought was really impressive in that Vanderbilt game, so I think those are some of the guys just off the top of my head without, you know, just missing somebody. Um, you know, I thought Hopper was really good. I think Torrance is a guy that has impressed me playing there with just his ability to, you know, really wrap up and tackle and, and it doesn't seem to take a lot of bad angles. I think whenever you kind of put the comparison of Keon O'Neal, who got burned in some coverage a lot of time early in his career, I think that that's going to happen when you're a younger guy. I think those are things that playing and getting that experience is something that can help that, and you know, kind of teach him on the fly. Um, but past that, I think those are the guys that really jump out the most to me. That I, I think that they should get some more, some more uh, snaps on the field.
1: I mean, and even if you do get burned, I mean, again, it's it's not like the starting secondary isn't having the same issues. I mean, sure, you very know, true. Vanderbilt throws a 58 yard touchdown pass on a skinny post where Sean Davis is nowhere close to it, and then both he and Steiner miss tackles. So it's like. You know, yeah, I I think to some degree, I I totally understand the frustration. I just, I do think that there have been signs of progress from this defense more than probably the fan that's watching it on Saturdays. I mean, I I think the defensive line since the return of Kyrie Campbell has been significantly improved. And you You can see that, of
2: you know, how many times, I mean, it feels like every other week, you know, a defensive lineman from Florida is winning SEC player of the week. And that seems to be kind of a trend that's picked up since camp. Well, minus uh, Carter won, won it whenever they played South Carolina, but it seems like you're seeing it more frequently there.
1: Yeah, and I think that speaks to just guys being able to play in the right positions. Again, I don't know that it's a dominant defensive line, and who knows, they may make no plays against, the, against Alabama out there. Maybe they get completely shut down. But I think for the most part, you're seeing signs that the defensive line is impacting the game more. And I think ultimately that's going to help the secondary. You know, the secondary for me, it's, it's communication issues. They've got to get those sorted out. And then schematically, I just – I don't always love what they're doing, man. There are so many times on third and nine, third and ten, where you have guys given a six-yard cushion – and playing bail. And, and they're, you know, so they're, they're backpedaling back past the sticks and then a receiver makes a simple cut. And it's an easy completion. Those are the kind of things I think frustrate fans because it seems very easily correctable. And yet here we are seven games in, and you're still seeing some of those issues. So
2: I, I could it. agree with that. I could totally agree with that too. You know, you see something happening, you know, why wouldn't they fix that? And, you know, fans, it's, it's not something that they can control. So, you know, they're sitting there asking the questions and you just don't see it. So I, I can understand definitely the frustrations there. And,
1: and I, will, I will defend Dan Mullen on this. Again, I, I go back to, I think Dan Mullen has a very, very keen sense of what is required within a given game to win it. And definitely. they build their game plan such that, you know, if they know that a team's going to go tempo- To some degree, they're okay with that. You know, if if a team goes tempo, they're just as likely to shoot themselves in the foot or get a big explosive play. And then guess what? Florida's offense is right back out there on the field, and that's a good thing for Florida. So, I don't know. I think the defense, it's not great. Look, nobody's making the argument that this defense is great, but I also think we don't know yet whether a pretty average defense is enough to win a title this year, given how explosive Florida's offense is. And I think the same questions happening at places like Alabama a little less so after their huge win last week but uh but I mean I mean these questions exist all over college football right now the scoring's up for a reason defenses didn't have a chance to go live much of the offseason so you know you've seen that take a toll and and then I just think generally it it seems like from a cyclical standpoint offenses are very ahead this year and again I'm not defending some of the obvious glaring issues that Florida has defensively but I'm not as down in the dumps on Florida's chances against Alabama as some of these other fans that, that, and again, I, I hate to overgeneralize, but I just think anything can happen in a given game. And I think when you've got a guy like Dan Mullen that knows how to work within a, an individual game to win, you've got a chance. I mean, every game is different. And I think, you know, obviously there's some issues Florida should get cleaned up tempo defensively, making sure they've got the right guys on the field. And then I think especially understanding the situation from a play calling standpoint. And I mean this for Todd Grantham and the defensive staff, give your guys a chance to make plays on those third downs, play the receivers a little bit closer. And, you know, maybe you can get off the field a little bit more and and give yourself a chance to get even further ahead in the game. That way, you know, you're not having these games where it seems like we've had a lot of Florida games this year where they're up two scores, they're up three scores, but they never quite seem to totally pull away. You know, they did it against Arkansas, but A&M, South Carolina, Ole Miss, they never seem to be able to pull fully away, and I think a lot of that is because of the defense. You know, if they can get off the field, we're not talking getting off the field eight times more per game. We're talking two, three times, force a punt, two, three more times, and I think Florida's in really, really good shape. So, Blake, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Kentucky because that's obviously been a tough matchup for Florida, and we'll talk some just bigger picture Florida football things right after this commercial break.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Welcome back to the Swamp 24-7 podcast. I'm Thomas Goldcamp here with Blake Alderman. Blake, we talked a good bit about the Heisman Trophy race last week, and our our general thinking was that Kyle Trask was maybe a little bit behind the front runners, it, at least in terms of perception. That's what it seemed like. After this week, the odds seem to be still shifting more in Kyle Trask's favor, and I think looking, you know, a lot of fans were upset when Emory Jones was left in there, when Kyle Trask <laughs> was kind of looking... For his fourth touchdown pass, I know he had the streak going. Kind of missed out at the chance on that. Missed out a chance on becoming the or matching the FBS record for the most touchdown passes through the first seven games of a season. And yeah, fans were fans were grumbling about that a little bit. Which I, you know, again, I think I find that a little bit funny given they won twenty one one by twenty one points. And you know, obviously, nothing in terms of season goals changed. But where do you view Kyle Trask after this week? I know Justin Fields had kind of a rough week, throwing three picks. Trevor Lawrence didn't play. I mean, is Kyle Trask the front runner at this point?
2: I would put him as the front runner. I think whenever you look at just the COVID year and you've got guys like Trevor Lawrence, who I think hasn't played in like two or three weeks now. I think he sat out two and then obviously didn't play uh, Florida State last weekend. Justin Fields, they had a later start to the season, comes out against an Indiana team that was ranked, I think, 10 at the time when they played him, threw three interceptions. And you just don't see Kyle Trask putting up those types of numbers either. I mean, I think he's thrown maybe, what, two intercepts, three interceptions the entire year? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was just, you know, over the stretch of seven games. So I I would have him as the front runner. I think when you look how he's putting up, you know, touchdown after touchdown each week against SEC defenses, um, you know, and it just seems like he's very consistent. You know, not only is he doing that with, you know, Kyle Pitts in the game you see that he's still putting up decent numbers without him um, so I, I just think everything seems to be shifting towards his way and I think part of that has to do with a guy that maybe didn't have the biggest body of work last year came in you know a couple day de- a couple games into the season after you know replacing Felipe Franks so I think now that he's getting a little bit more you know more fame to his name I guess if you want to call it that it seems like he's starting to move up the boards um he can continue I, I mean when you look at Florida's remaining schedule you think that he's going to continue to excel the way he has especially with how Florida's offense just seems to be humming um but past that I mean Mac Jones it certainly seems like that to me is the biggest competition I guess in the Heisman race I, I mean Justin Fields is going to be in there he's going to continue to probably put up you know really good numbers because he's a really good quarterback. But I think past that, when you look at what Mac Jones and what Kyle Trask has done, I think to me, those are the two guys to kind of circle as this, as this Heisman competition going forward.
1: Yeah. And it seems to be to me a a pretty clear race between Kyle Trask and Mac Jones at this point. And I think because of the fact that those two are going to meet on the field, it almost seems like from a national media standpoint, everybody's kind of waiting for that. Right. And I think unless Kyle Trask or Mac Jones really slip up and just have an awful game to where, you know, one or the other takes the lead. I I don't know that these other guys are going to really be able to get back in the race. You know, I mean, I, I say that, you know, they'd have to do something like a a seven Tebow touchdown performance to, to kind of get themselves in it when you're talking about Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence, at least that's how it feels like, you know, it feels like they're setting this up to basically come down to that game in Atlanta and, you know, whichever one leads his team to the win slash looks better unless one of these other guys does something just insane. It feels like that's, that's the way this is setting up. And, it was funny, you know, Dan Mullen was asked about Kyle Trask's performance this weekend, and, you know, I, I think there were some throws he missed, you know, here and there, and uh, somebody was asked about, you know, Kyle Trask not having his sharpest game, and, and Dan Mullen goes, whoa, 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 wait a second, okay? I threw for 383 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. We're doing something right if that's a, a bad game for Kyle Trask, and exactly. he's right, and I think, you know, like, I think that's part of the reason Kyle Trask has surged is, you know, If that's his floor, man, while some of these other guys are having some struggles, throwing picks, not even playing necessarily, uh, he's putting himself in a really, really good position to potentially take home that award. But, hey, Dan Mullen said at the end of the day, they're not going to call the offense. They're not going to call games around trying to win Trask an award. His belief is very much if you take care of business on the field and you're a team that's competing for championships and winning games, the rest will kind of sort itself out. And, you know, based on how things have gone so far this season for Florida, it's hard to argue. I mean, Kyle Trask, for all intents and purposes, is the favorite at this point? So, uh, you know, I think it's, been it's been pretty a- impressive
2: considering that Florida hasn't been scared to throw Emory Jones in some games. Obviously, he was hurt for a couple games with with a hand, um, but I think it's pretty impressive when you look at the numbers that he's putting up. And that's you know even Emory getting some burn on some of those plays and, and, and playing some of those games like he did against Vanderbilt and Arkansas. No
1: doubt, and I you know <laughs> I joke about it on Twitter. I've I've joked about it the last two weeks that Florida's defense, you know not kind of having that, that killer instinct to kind of put things away and, and allowing teams to stay in it has actually kind of helped Trask. And uh, you know, there, there's some truth to that, but uh, you know, I, I think he's going to have a great shot. I, I don't see anything changing. I mean, I just can't, I can't envision Kyle Trask playing the way he's playing to really just have a truly disaster game. And with that being the case, I think he's going to be in this race until the very end. I just don't know that it's going to shift, you know, to where you're, you're really confident in there being a clear cut Heisman winner until that game in
2: Atlanta. And, you know, and I hope that the Heisman voters don't put, you know, the winner of that game into perspective when they're, because for me picking the Heisman trophy is the best player in college football, not who has on the best team or, you know, who wins the most games. So I I get the national perspective of, you know, this is a big game because it's going to put two Heisman trophy candidates. I mean, really what seems like a two team or two guy race between the two of them. I think it should be the best player who puts up the best stats who to me, that's, that's at least what I hope whenever it comes to picking the, you know, the winner here.
1: I agree with you, man. It's just like to Dan Mullen's point, it seems like that's kind of the way it's trended the last several years. It
2: has. It has.
1: All right, Blake, I want to do something a little different for the end of the show. We we have been touting this five star mailbag that we'd like to make a a pretty permanent feature on the podcast. And we've had a couple of weeks where we haven't really gotten any reviews, haven't gotten any questions. I went to look today before the podcast, and uh, we had about six different five-star reviews and five-star questions. So I think we'll do this a little bit differently. I think we're going to go a little bit more rapid fire answer rather than getting in depth. We may not both answer, you know, each question, but we want to answer some of these questions. So Blake, let me go ahead and start with a question for you. Uh, We have two or three different questions about this on recruiting. So I'll kind of summarize the questions. How many spots does Florida have left in this 2021 recruiting class and who does UF realistically land? Are there any guys you're kind of keeping an eye on for a potential late flip?
2: Uh, you know, total spots, I think the last time the numbers were crunched, I think it was 27 spots in this class. Florida currently has 26 in the class. Um, but then you've got a guy like Chief Borders who's committed to Florida, and he's going to have a final decision on Thursday, um, talking about schools like Florida, Florida State, Stanford, I think Michigan State, uh, Illinois, where where he's from originally. I mean, he's got a, a cluster of schools still that he's talking about. Him making another decision would obviously open up another spot. You've got a guy like Diavi Hammond, uh, the JUCO offensive line commitment for Florida, who isn't going to have um, – he's not going to be signing um, in December uh, with him still needing to take some classes in the summer. Um, you know, obviously with Juco's and Florida success there, that's something to keep an eye on there because he still has another semester there in the summer to finish things up. So those I, there's a sliding scale with numbers here because you've got guys that are making final decisions or still need to finish some things up in the classroom. So I think that that, the number of the class, I mean, 27 seems like the number. And you've got to also factor in that Demarcus Bowman has committed to Florida too, and he's coming in as a transfer. Um, so it's tight, man. I mean, there's, there's some tight spots there. You know, Florida's got some guys. Um, realistically right now, I think Terry and Arnold seems like a very likely guy who isn't going to make a decision until February's National Signing Day. But I think I, I really like where Florida sits with him right now. Um, he's been, you know, a top priority for the class. He's kind of that cherry on top for an already impressive uh, secondary class. Tunamiche out of LA is another guy that I'm keeping an eye on I I've been pretty heavy thinking that this is trending more towards Texas A&M with just all the shutdown and, and you know not being able to take visits he's been able to get to College Station because it's not a very far drive he's been able to kind of check out campus obviously not able to meet with you know the coaches and whatnot while he's there but just the the familiarity and just the, the COVID season definitely seems that keeping home is, is, is something that is kind of in his back pocket there another team that I, I believe was his first offer so there's a lot to like about them there I um, Xavier Story I think is an interesting one because I do feel like Florida has made a lot of headway there. I think that where I was kind of feeling this was trending more towards Georgia before that Georgia game coming out of there, Florida having some swagger there, that big win, continuing to kind of show that their program is on the rise, that you know Dan Mullen has gotten that monkey off his back of beating Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs. I think that Florida has been able to not only get him on campus, he was on campus for the Arkansas game, not able to meet the coaches there, but was able just to hang out and see the game. And I, I do like where things are trending for Florida there. I'm not quite ready to put in a crystal ball there because he was rumored to be at Georgia last weekend. He's saying he wasn't there. I don't know that it was ever confirmed that he was there, but it's possible that he could take visits. You know, Alabama's still in this. He's got a final three of Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. They can get him on campus. I'm sure Georgia's going to be working to get him on campus. So it does seem that he's still – Still mulling things over, it still seems like it's very much a battle. I don't get any overwhelming confidence from any team that's involved there. I think for the most part, Georgia and Florida have been seen as the two teams battling it out, battling it out for him. But you just don't really see any glowing confidence. You just, you know, kind of we feel good, you know, like our chances, but nothing really overwhelming confidence there. And that's kind of where I'm at. To where I'm okay with letting things play out and okay with letting, you know, kind of seeing if there's any twists in the tides. I do know that he's going to be making his final decision on December sixteenth, which is the first day of the early signing period. So there's still In a little under a month to to have a decision here, I I do like a lot where Florida sits in here now, and I like a lot of their chances better now than I did a couple weeks back or maybe even a month back. Um, Past that, you know, there's just not a ton of targets left out there, you know, for Florida that I would really say keeping an eye on. Um, You know, flip wise, I mean, one guy that Florida's been in communication with is Miami uh, offensive line commit Lawrence Seymour. I don't know that I really see that being a guy that I, I guess Florida would when you look at the guys they have in the offensive line class now, I just don't know that you really see them a need for another guy, unless a Diaby Hammond or something doesn't able to make it in or, or something changes there. I just don't really see a need for that. A Bryce Langston is another guy too, that I have a Florida crystal ball on. I feel really good about him being in Florida's class. He's not making his decision or at least not planning as of now to make a decision until the early signing period, December 16th. Guy lives in Ocala. He's been to Florida a billion times. LSU's the other school in there. And I, I if he's, if he's ever visited there, I'd, don't think he has, but if he has, it's only been one time. Um, so I just don't think that there's a ton of familiarity there. Could it be a different story had it been a different year and he was able to take visits? Maybe. But I really like Florida's chances there. But with just spots so limited right now, Destin Hill is another guy, a four-star wide receiver that Florida's still in communication with. They've got four, I think, four guys in the class now. Charles Montgomery, uh, Marcus Burke, Trevante Rucker, um, I mean, uh, either way, I mean, I, I, the last name escapes off the top of my head now without having it pulled up in front of me. But I just don't see a huge need for another wide receiver. Whenever you've got such a big need to fill on defense, and you've got a lot of these guys, these uh, you know, elite upper echelon defensive guys, a guy like Xavier Soria, a guy like Terry and Arnold, a guy like Bryce Langston, defensive line, linebacker, and, and safety, those are positions that Florida really needs to focus on with, with numbers being a crunch right now.
1: Appreciate the answer, man. All right, let's roll to the next five-star mailbag question. I'll take this one from Mr. Ken C., are we concerned at all? Or are you concerned at all that Anthony Richardson has not looked great in limited snaps so far this year? Uh, for me, no, not at all. I think Dan Mullen has proven himself beyond the shadow of a doubt when it comes to recruiting and developing quarterbacks. I think, I think one, it's just a super small sample size. I mean, really, even with Emory Jones right now, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, very strongly one way or another how I see the offense working when he's in there as a full-time starter. Uh, I'm high on both of those guys' potential. But I think for for Dan Mullen, when it comes to first-year quarterbacks like Anthony Richardson, it seems to be more about getting them used to how practices work, how games work, how you prepare within a game plan. And I think the biggest benefit for Anthony Richardson this season isn't going to come from necessarily playing time on the field. It's going to come from making a couple of these road trips, you know, potentially if he's on the travel roster. I know he didn't travel last week. But making these road trips, understanding, you know, what it's like to be in these big games. You saw Dan Mullen do it with Emory Jones as a true freshman, getting him involved in a couple plays in the Georgia game. Well, Emory Jones was the number two guy, I believe, when that, that kind of happened. Uh, you know, Anthony Richardson isn't. So, you know, you've got Emory Jones that Dan Mullen's still trying to develop and needs to develop him more immediately you know, to where there's just not a ton of snaps available right now for Anthony Richardson. But I think Dan Mullen's proven he can get quarterbacks to be patient. He can get quarterbacks to understand that he's going to develop them over time. You know, Anthony Richardson, the athleticism is very clear. The upside is very clear. Came in a little bit raw as a passer, but they're still working on that. But I'm not at all concerned about anything we've seen from him so far. I think it's just too small a sample size. And I think, you know, I just trust Dan Mullen inherently on that.
2: It definitely seems like a trust the process type of guy. And that definitely seems kind of like the mantra of Florida's quarterback room, trust the process and everything will work out.
1: And that's what Dan Mullen likes to recruit at the position. So moving on to the next five-star mailbag question. Uh, this question comes from UF Gator fan 100. Uh, it's a two-part question. First off, do we think Kyle Trask's lack of mobility kept him from beating out Felipe Franks so, Blake? I'll let you go ahead and take a stab at that first.
2: You know, I, I think so, to some, to some point, because Franks did show a little bit more athleticism there. I think for the most part, too, you look at a guy like Felipe Franks, he was very well-liked in the locker room, was more of, a I guess, a vocal type of leader. And I think Kyle Trask has made big strides of doing that. He's done a lot more of, of being more of a vocal guy, being more of a leader. And I think whenever you have a guy that's very quiet, you know, can make all the throws, and has ideal size it's getting to a point where you're splitting hairs. And I think that probably Felipe showing a little bit more athleticism with the run, being able to stretch the play a little bit more. I'm sure that that did give him the nod early on, but I think also to the, the chance to command the room, command the locker room, command the huddle, all those things. I think that both of those factors probably played some point into that.
1: Yeah. Well, you said that, you know, as well as I possibly could, I think that the leadership in the locker room, and then I think just having some prior sec experience was huge for Daniel, sure. and, you know, not knowing exactly what you got. And again, you know, hindsight's 2020 man we see with Trask now obviously he's been fantastic and this will get into the second part of the question um how far along would would Florida be as a program and would it have potentially won a national championship if Kyle Trask hadn't broken his foot before that South Carolina game in 2018 um I guess I'll start with you know the hypothetical it's very possible I think you know I think if Kyle Trask had had you know four games to end the 2018 season and really taken over as the starter, it's entirely possible those four games in the first three last year would have allowed Dan Mullen to know exactly what he has and, and really given you a leg into working with a defense last year that I thought was a lot better and potentially if Florida's in that mix, it could have, you know. Um, but I think hindsight's twenty twenty. I think you got to remember that Dan Mullen, first off, uh, you know, obviously he saw the physical tools in Felipe Franks, and I think a lot of coaches have fallen in love with those. You know, he's going to be an NFL prospect for a reason. But I think you got to remember too, Kyle Trask, he had no body of work whatsoever really at the college level. So you, it's one thing to see it in practice, but to get past, I think, the mental block of, of of having some degree of this guy didn't even start for his high school team. Like what, you know, what's going on there. I think it would be almost unhuman for Dan Mullen of not to have not had that in the back of his mind somewhere.
2: Sure. For a, for a guy like Dan Mullen, who seems Physical abilities, all those things aside, you know, those are one thing, but it does seem like he's a very, very heavy on the mental thing, not being able to throw a guy in there that he's not ready or if you don't know he's ready. And I think that that probably had some play in there too, just because Felipe had a lot of things to work on to get things mentally from his, you know, his redshirt freshman year where things just really didn't go really well for him. And he's, you know, having beef on Twitter with fans and all this other, you know, he's getting booed and all that. There were a lot of things that he had to work and fix through there. So I think that it's easier to trust what you know than what you don't know.
1: All right, Blake, final five-star mailbag question before we sign off. This one comes from ATL Gator 22 There are, and again, I'm summarizing some of these questions, but Florida will have Trayvon Grimes, Darius Toney, Kyle Pitts, all potentially departing next year. A lot of veteran skill position players could be gone. Which younger players, Blake, are we expecting to make the big jump in 2021, particularly if there's someone that maybe is off the radar for fans?
2: You know, I think I have to go with just looking at what he's done over the last couple of weeks. Justin Shorter has been really impressive for Florida. He's got that size. You know, he's, he's got a little bit of a thicker build to where I think if you can continue to bulk him up somewhat and keep him kind of athletic, I think he could have some Kyle Pitts-esque to his game. Maybe not a, you know, a traditional tight end to where you're going to have him down there blocking. But just a guy that's a wide receiver but has the size and can do different things and has Mitch matches. Just what he's done in the last couple weeks I think is really impressive. I think Jacob Copeland is another guy that comes to my mind. But just what you've seen shorter, it just seems like over the last couple weeks since he's a guy that was a transfer guy, wasn't sure if he's going to be able to play this year, obviously got that clearance to play in that Ole Miss game. But it just seems like the more and more time goes on, the more he gets comfortable and the more he's making a bigger impact for Florida. All right.
1: I will go with Naquan Wright. And I don't know if that's cheating a little bit. I know he's getting touches already. But – I just watch him and, man, the patience, it just continues to stick out every week. This is a guy that knows how to read his blocks. He knows how to get free in the open field. He's got more speed than you think, and I love the way he finishes runs. I think he's going to be poised for a big year. And, you know, I, maybe it's not 2021. I know Damian Pearson and Malik Davis both still have another year if they want to come back. But I just – I see something special in that guy. You know, he's, he's a guy that in high school had an injury that kept him a little bit off the radar later in his high school career. I think he's back. I think he's got the kind of work ethic that coaches love, and I just I think he's got such an instinctive feel for the game that I think he's going to be a guy that, by the time he leaves Florida, you're going to be talking about him. You know, in, in the realm of some of these top Florida running backs that have ever come through. So. All right,
2: That's guys. That's a good pick. That's a really good pick.
1: Appreciate it. That will do it for this episode of the podcast, guys. We'd like to do the uh, five star podcast every episode. Sometimes, if we only have one question, we'll we'll spend more time on the segment. Or we, uh, you know, if we get a bunch like we did this week, we can turn it into a rapid fire thing where we kind of make it a little quicker. But to remind you guys, if you, if you don't know how to submit a review, go ahead and go to Apple podcasts on iTunes, drop us a five-star review. And in that review, make sure you leave us a question for the five-star mailbag. We will answer it on our next episode of the podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will see you guys on Thursday with a preview looking ahead to the Kentucky game.